welcome to Hit for Six. Uh, it's a Saturday, a cold, wintry Saturday, uh, but there's something about cricket that gives me a warmth inside, and that's what we're here to discuss again today, aren't we, Michael? How are you? Yeah, I'm all right, Rob. I mean, I've just kept you waiting for a good 45 minutes because I basically just didn't sleep very well. I was up to a half four of toothache. So I need to get that sorted. But, you know, I'm going to play tennis after this. So that'll be nice. How about you? Um, yeah, I'm I'm well. Don't worry. You might have kept me waiting, but got plenty of life admin done. Did a few sporkle quizzes. Chelsea Champions League scorers of all time. Forgot The only one I forgot was Victor Moses, which was gutting because I was actually there for that goal. I got all these random ones like Marco Ambrosetti and Albert Ferrer, but, but no Victor Moses. Um, but no, I'm, I'm well and um, excited to chat to you a little bit about um, England cricket, where they are at the moment in the winter, and then um, speak about our guest shortly as well. Yeah, absolutely. First up, yesterday I think it was, it, um, England announced their, uh, their test squad for the tour of Sri Lanka. A few big names rested, Joffre, Ben Stokes, um, and some notable people back in. Most strikingly, Moeen is back, uh, and so is Johnny Bairstow. Thoughts on that, Michael? I think both make sense. I think that bringing Moeen back in, even though he's not played a test since 2019, and he's not really been doing that well, particularly with the ball, in one day as in T20s, so he's not exactly bowled his way back into the team. He did well, very well, on our last, last tour of Sri Lanka. He's got experience of test cricket and you need spinners for Sri Lanka. And so I think they're just taking him based on his experience, based on his personality, what they know he can bring, rather than on anything in the last year. But I think it's fine. I, I think it's fair enough. But I do think he needs to take this opportunity. He's been given a bit of a lucky chance here. And so he needs to make the most of it. Bairstow averages highest in our top six, apart from Joe Root, I think, against spin. We've got no Stokes. It actually makes sense for him to be there. But I don't want him played as keeper. I want him played as a batsman. And he needs, And again, he's not He's not got back in on weight of runs, first-class cricket. Although he has done one-on-one days. But no, I want him played as a batsman, probably in the top three. Uh, I think Zach Corley's going to open with Sibley. And so Bairstow presumably is going to slot in at three where he made his last test time. So I think both are fair enough. And the one pick I'm actually really excited about is Dan Lawrence. I really hope he gets some games, especially as Roy Burns. Is absent, so there are going to be gaps. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, I think the, the squad is pretty standard, really. Once you take out the people who are unavailable, there's no kind of glaring omissions, I'd say. Uh, and most of those have been... I mean, not many people really deserve to be dropped, and, and no one kind of has been. Um, no Rashid, though. Your beloved Rashid. You were hoping he might make a, a test match. Yeah. But looking what? at the reserves, the spinner reserves they've got, they've got Mason Crane in there. Matthew Parkinson, Amo Verdi, that ship has surely sailed. I think so. I think I think it's not because they thought, right, we bat Mason Crane here, we bat Verdi over Rashid. Because I think reports have been that there's been conversations between Rashid and Ed Smith and basically Rashid just hasn't wanted to risk his shoulder because his shoulder injury was so bad it almost made him miss the World Cup and it made him a much less of a threatening presence during the World Cup, our successful World Cup. And I think, you know, he's had the op and it's fixed it to the extent that he's back bowling beautifully in limited overs. But I don't think he backs himself to get through the overs required of test cricket and he doesn't want to risk what he's built up in limited overs, which makes complete sense for him. It's just a shame because I do think, I still think he's our most exciting spin option. But I was a dreamer. It's not happening. Um, I'm also excited to see Ollie Stone. And I hope, I do think, well, I do think it's a bit weird. I'm interested to hear what you think, Rob. 
is that Mark Wood didn't get given a test contract. He got given a limited overs contract, which I think was a bad decision anyway, because there's talk about Mark Wood wanting to quit test cricket because of the impact it has on his body. And he's spoken about that. But then they didn't play him once in the South Africa T20. And I'm sure they were going to play him in the one day series. But it does seem a bit weird to give someone a white ball contract, not play them at all in the white ball series, and then make them play test cricket in Sri Lanka. Not a great place for pace bowlers. I don't know. that It feels like we're mishandling him a bit. What do you think? I, I don't know if there's something around like a cap on how many contracts they can give out or value of contracts to players central contracted for different formats. And so whether that means that they wanted extra people with test central contracts, but they, they like hit their cap and so they put Mark Wood on an ODI one. I don't know if that's how it works, but that could be one explanation. There probably is. It just feels like he was, it feels to me like his real value to us lies in trying to get the ashes back and managing him correctly for that. And so to not give him a test contract, it was short-sighted. Maybe. I think he's it's certainly an important one-day bowler. Um, 2020 bowler. He's quick. Uh, obviously, he was important in the in the World Cup. Yeah, uh, bowled well in some of those games against Australia in the summer, uh, and his Test performances at home have been very average. Away, he's done quite well, so it may, kind of makes sense to be playing Sri Lanka. But at home, he has been repeatedly underwhelming, and so perhaps there's a, a sense that he might not play many Test matches in the summer, and therefore isn't entitled to to a contract. It's a good opportunity for Wokes actually to show he can do it abroad because obviously he's got such disparity between his home and away records. And with Archer being rested and Wokes and sorry Stokes being rested, Wokes is obviously going to be absolutely inked into this team. So it'll be it's a good opportunity for him to actually kick on with both ball and bat. You know from his amazing summer. I expect him to do well with the bat more than the ball. I think he'll do okay with the ball, but he's always going. He's got to do well enough with the ball, you know, because he's going to be battling to get into that Ashes side for next year. So I think it's quite a big series for him as well, actually. Well, all to come and stuff we'll no doubt talk about over uh, in, in the new year when those two tests are, are played. And I think it's the 14th and 22nd of January. Um, but since yes. we've last spoken about English cricket properly, uh, we had a great 2020 series against South Africa. Go on, give me two, your two main thoughts on, on that series. Oh, we're just good, aren't we? Like, we've just got so much power and depth in our batting lineup. Someone's going to go. I know that's what everyone says, and it's just a cliche, but it's true. Um, Jason Roy looks scratchy, which is a bit of a worry. And I actually think Jason Roy is the man more in danger of losing his place than anyone else in that top six, because his T20 record is very patchy. He can go, obviously, massive. But to an extent, I think some international teams started to find out him out a little bit with starting him against spin. I still back him to come good, but he's, I think, a bit under a bit of pressure. He's the only one to come out of that series under a bit more pressure than he started it, I would say. I'd say that's an understatement. They've started to work him out a little bit. Every single team in the world just starts with spin and gets him out in the first over. <laughs> Every um, team. But no, I mean, it, it happens even more in T20 cricket than it does in one-day cricket. Um, although I have to say, you know, best I find frustrating, but my moment of it was his, his knock because when he gets nipped between his teeth... <laughs> He just goes absolutely massive. Yeah, there's no doubt. He's, I mean, he will go down as one of England's greatest one day batsmen in both 2020 and one day cricket. He's just fantastic. Um, but of course, the, the real marvel has been and always will remain to be David Milan. Um, just incredible batting. Absurd. Absurdly good. Uh, and there's something we'll, we'll touch on with um, some of our guests, I'm sure, over the next um, couple of episodes. But 
his performances have been have been remarkable. And I, I suppose for me, he's completely undroppable. Even though he slow, starts slowly and he's on sort of 20 off 20, he just too often goes and gets a massive score and wins us the game. And when he doesn't, I still think we have enough quality in the team, Stokes, Morgan, Butler, Bairstow, that actually we can afford him occasionally going 20 off 20 and, and not coming off. Yeah, I, I, I do feel like it's a case of trying to find an issue because actually a batsman occasionally scoring 20 off 20 is not... I know, I know it can be an issue with the fine margins of the game, but it's not a really big issue when they're getting the runs he is in his, the rest of his innings. No, he's, for me, yeah, I agree. Undroppable. Number one T20 batsman in the world. I, I didn't follow... The uh, I didn't follow his big his big knock closely. I think I was busy that day, but I just checked my phone to see what happened to cricket, and I just see Darren Mellahan ninety odd, and I just honestly my first reaction was this is absurd. He's it's like he's it's like his county cricket captain, and someone's in such a good run of form. He's kind of broken the game. Yeah, I mean he was a bit unlucky with the ninety nine. I almost like he didn't realise he was so close to a century. Like he took a single when the ball when he probably could have taken a boundary, and then he suddenly looked up and realised it was game over, and he was on ninety nine. He, he looked a little bit. Uh, but I don't know. I think he knows that he can't pull that stuff anymore because when he didn't run that last year, we've spoken about this, he didn't run that by and Morgan really went after him in the press conference after, so he would not accept players protecting their average for the team. And I think if he turned down a winning run so he could get his tongue, I think he'd have felt, mm. and then well, he did make a joke about it in the press conference afterwards. I think that was him trying to justify it because I don't think he would turn down a winning run, but I think he would have gone for a, a bat for a boundary ball and was free to try to hit a boundary four or six. Yeah, and the look on his face when he saw he was a ninety nine, the game was over. Like that instant reaction looked like a man who is ah crap, I, I miscalculated that one a bit. Yeah, well, yeah, fair, fair, fair point, fair point. I'm excited. I was very excited to watch the RT twenty this year. Um, with my tickets that I've talked about not being able to go because um, I thought we had a decent chance but actually I think having a bit more time to prep a bit more time since the World Cup to work out our T20 side to let players like Milan emerge I think puts us in maybe better shape in a year's time when it eventually happens I think we're looking good we are looking good we are looking good yeah uh, quick, quickly then on to the ODIs which were unfortunately called off due to COVID bubble breaches we speak about this with our with our guest, who we'll introduce very shortly. But um, yeah, your 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 thoughts on that, Michael? A real shame that that series couldn't go ahead. It is a real shame. It makes you feel lucky and grateful that we got all of that cricket last summer. And there's obviously stuff coming out now, which again we talk about our guests. So I won't go into too much detail now. But there's clearly fingers being pointed by both sides. But it just feels like a shame, and particularly because cricket South Africa's finances aren't strong, and everyone knows that. And they really needed this to go ahead. And this is a massive blow to them, which is a shame. What do you think, Rob? Yeah, I um, couldn't agree more. Uh, I do think it's, it's, just, it's just difficult. There's a frustration there that these are 22 fit, healthy, incredibly low-risk individuals, none of whom are showing any symptoms or are remotely ill. Uh, and there's that, there's that frustration that it can't go ahead when no one's actually ill. So the same happened in the rugby with Fiji. Like none of them were ill, but they all tested positive and so they couldn't play. Um, that's frustrating. We kind of understand then that but the risks of it then being spread to people who are more vulnerable. And, and with half the squad then flying on to the BBL, it just, it feels like a bit of a slap in the face of South Africa. Yeah. 
yeah, it's just it's all just very frustrating. Um, and it's like with all it's like with all COVID rules, really. You know, you suddenly thrust find yourself thrust into tier three, like we might be in London again soon, and suddenly all those restaurants have to close again, and that's a massive slap in the face. Uh, all all these kind of quite arbitrary restrictions that are put in place, you know, for for good, supposedly, um, but they 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 are just they do cause real financial. I think it's the flip. Pain it's and... the flip. It's the it's the flip flopping, isn't it? It's not just choosing a course and sticking with it. You know. I think choose choose a course and stick with it. And actually, I think for restaurant owners, pub owners, they'd be happy with that rather than having to live in this purgatory space with a kind of half open, barely making any money. Um, we're not a political podcast, so we're not going to go into it. But there is that just frustration, a complete lack of like a coherent plan. It yeah. feels like we'll change it at a whim. Um, anyway, just on the cricket side, if that had happened to a touring side here, and they two days later got up and gone. I don't think it'd have gone down very well here. So I can completely see why it's not going down well there. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I do think at times the ECB were talking about how the Sri Lanka tour was unworkable because players would have to isolate for too long. And I'm like, you just made West Indies and Pakistan go through that. There's no reason why. It's suddenly one rule for them, one rule for us. We call the shots because we got more money. We're more important. Mm. Doesn't, doesn't sit well with me at all. Doesn't feel um, great. Um, but anyway, it brings us on to uh, our guests um, today, who we did speak about this, amongst a whole range of other issues. This podcast it, and our discussion with him, it really meandered. Go on, do you want to introduce him for us, Michael? Yeah, Rob, this week we have got independent journalist, or I should say journalist for The Independent, Vifushan Ehamvaraja. And yeah, I love his Twitter content. I have followed him for a while. He writes some very good articles as well. And yeah, I'm really excited to talk to him. Yeah, he's quite punchy on some of the more controversial issues in the game. And I think that comes out in our discussion with him a bit around the whole England-South Africa tour, 2020 franchise cricket versus test cricket. Um, and then towards the end, we speak a little bit about Black Lives Matter and, and racism in cricket as well. And he's up to discuss tricky issues and has quite clear and vocal opinions on them which is nice, and which is why I really, really enjoyed having him on and why I think it's worth a listen. Good evening, Vithushan. Great to have you with us. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me. You were talking just earlier about um, you having your bathroom redone. How's, how's, how's that all going? <laughs> yeah, brilliant, mate. Yeah, um, uh, I've never had... I've never had to do any kind of anything like this actually, so I felt like an adult, which was nice. Um, I was tempted to call my dad and get him sorted out, but um, I think that's the whole point of moving out is that you um, got to be an adult. And at the age of thirty-four, it's probably been much calling your old man for that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, good, good. Um, yeah, <laughs> a nice way to end twenty twenty. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, to be honest, not that this is what this podcast is about, but doing something similar at the moment. We had a bit of a mould problem in our bathroom, so I was down at home base <laughs> buying mould remover and sort of repainting the um, the walls and the little window cracks where it all builds up. So, yeah, a fitting way to end twenty twenty in a in a mouldy dank bathroom. Um, sort of feeling a bit sorry for myself, really. And you use I mean, different paint as well to do a bathroom, don't you? I only found this out when we because of this, yeah. There's different paint for like walls in bedrooms to bathrooms. Yeah, because of you know, less moisture absorbing and, and whatever else it is. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. Speak for myself as someone in their mid-20s with no end to renting in sight. You know, the day I get to do up my bathroom might be quite a good day. But I can't this see it is... happening until I'm at least 34, <laughs> if not a bit yeah. older. Yeah. 
this is a little bit even within first world these are like first world first world problems aren't they right. <laughs> yeah absolutely sure. uh, but also a, a, i suppose almost an image of what 2020 has been like it's the kind of the banal and domestic that we end up talking about what's it been like <laughs> for you and in, in your work sport crowds disappearing um presumably there was a lot of stuff on online press conferences online that kind of thing yeah loads everything we used to everything we used to do in person beyond I suppose reporting on the actual match has been done remotely and even then you know you'd have a lot of papers that or you know um, websites that might have two people at a game because of the restrictions on numbers in press boxes due to social distancing and things like that they're all down to one so even you actually already you'll you'll even have someone who's covering the game off the TV, which I think, you know, someone like Vic Marks of the Guardian did a couple of times this summer. So yeah. Oh well, yeah. Press conferences all done like that. Um, quite annoying as well, because, you know, you two will know from, from reading press conference quotes, they're not particularly groundbreaking uh, a lot of the time and uh, even more benign over, you know, over the internet. And often you quite, it's quite easy to tell if someone's lying or someone's, you know, withholding information by, you know seeing them talk in person or having them have to like sounds weird but like having them look you and other people in the eye when they say these things um so that's been new and um you know obviously this vaccine hopefully fingers crossed touch wood and all that is going to change that but yeah it's been very very unusual yeah very dystopian you've um i know you've been going to watch football matches in the crowdless stadiums in recent weeks but in the recent summer just gone were you able to go to the grounds for any of the matches were you in the bubble or were you reporting from home on the summer's cricket uh yeah i was in the bubble for for the tests and then i didn't do the odis i didn't do any odis actually apart sorry apart from the australia odis at the end of the summer so yeah i spent a decent amount of time in uh, the aegeus bowl and uh, emirates old trafford as well the the lucky thing for us though was this might be a bit boring so please stop me um but basically the uh, the grounds were obviously a one big bubble but within them had different bubbles so you'd obviously have the main bubble which was essentially the pitch so everyone involved in in the game itself you know had to were in a certain restricted area and then just beyond that you'd have the broadcasters you know tms sky and all that um and obviously the people who have to put on the game or the production team um were in another bubble and then on the outer bubble was us the the written press so we could come and go as we please essentially so we get our temperature checks twice on the way in and then, but we, we were staying, you know, I was staying in, in Manchester um, and then we were in Winchester for the, for the Aegeus Bowl stuff. So to be honest, we, we, we didn't really have anything to complain about. Like obviously it was, it, it wasn't quite the same without fans there and things like that. And no crowd noise has quite a profound effect even on cricket, but the um, yeah, but in terms of restrictions, you know, we're, we're, as a, as a member of the written press, who was there, it was, yeah, it wasn't too too different, to be honest. I mean, I can't speak for Rob, but definitely not boring to me. It's interesting hearing how it all worked, actually, particularly in the light of the recent issues in South Africa, which we'll go on to later. But mm, I suppose yeah. you were talking about how press conferences all being virtual makes it a bit more banal, harder to get to the players and what they're meaning, whether they're lying, whether they're telling the truth. And I'm guessing that sort of extra degree of separation, so even though you were in a bubble, but you were actually in the outer bubble, whereas the players right in the inner thing, you maybe as journalists felt even more disconnected from them, felt even harder to kind of get at them and interact, I guess. 
Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I, I should say <laughs> they don't lie all the time. I think it's more. I think it's more like when they're when they're a bit withholding, and understandably so. I think so, you know so you can tell when there's a bit more to what someone says um, rather than just that they were disappointed not to take ten wickets. You know. Um, but yeah, I, I suppose it's generally more felt around training because you know when the players are netting, you can go and have a walk around and like you might chat to someone here and there. Um, so. Yeah, like I suppose in that regard, it, it was it was very different. But you don't, you know, beyond actually press conferences and stuff like that, you don't really tend to talk to the players or be around them particularly much at all when when a game's going on because they're they're obviously so so focused on the more important side of it, which is playing and actually winning. So um, yeah, but it, but it was still still pretty unusual. Yeah, I think they preferred it, <laughs> which I think is saying something. But um, yeah, no, it was just something another thing to get used to. Yeah, I'm taking it back for you, um, right, right back. For- in cricket, was that a sport you enjoyed growing up? When did you think, wow, this is a sport I really like. I'd actually like to spend my life writing about it, along with football, of course. I don't know. It's um, In terms of when it was a sport I liked, I think it's one of those things that happens to everyone, really. You just kind of, you grow up and then, or, you know, as you're growing up, it just becomes your thing, doesn't it? Like, I, I can't, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you a specific moment where I thought, oh, I really love this sport, but... um. I suppose like a big thing for me was Sri Lanka winning the World Cup in 96 because, you know, seeing people from a country where I was born, you know, I was born in London. My parents moved over in 84. I was born in 86. And so beyond my family, I didn't really have an affiliation to Sri Lanka. I didn't really know what they were good at because football was something I was also into. But, you know, they don't really have any any presence on um, when it comes to football. But then when they won the 96 World Cup, obviously I knew they played cricket and you know, when I started playing cricket at school, there was some teachers would say, oh, yeah, from Sri Lanka, you know, and this, that. But then when they won the World Cup, I was like, oh, no, okay, this is this is serious. And I think that kind of fueled it from then. And in terms of, in terms of writing about it, you probably have to go like 20 years later when I was at uni and thinking what I wanted to do. And sports writing was always something that interested me. I didn't really know how to get into it or if it was even a viable career, to be honest. So I did chemical engineering at uni in Edinburgh. And it was at the end of that, I started writing for the student paper, started writing about cricket. And I thought, if I can, if I can make this work, because I knew chemical engineering wasn't going to work for me. Um, but I was like, yeah, if I can make this work somehow, then yeah, fingers crossed. And, and like, yeah, luckily it kind of came good. Yeah. That's a really impressive switch, actually, because I sometimes think, oh, you know, if we can keep this podcast going, grow it a bit, you know, maybe I won't have to work in local government anymore I'll go to, I can just like write about cricket watch cricket Rob doesn't have to work in car insurance we can just do cricket all the time but now I think oh we did history we haven't done the journalist degree that sort of thing so that's quite it's nice to hear you know you did chemical engineering and now you get to follow cricket and football around the world for your job yeah I'm I'm, I'm very lucky yeah it's interesting you mentioned journalism degrees I don't know of many people so if I, just from my kind of like closer circle in terms of work, um, so Will McPherson, who's at the Standard, Tim Wigmore, who's at the Telegraph, Adam Collins. I don't know that any, well, I, I mean, known none of us did journalism degrees or, you know, any kind of, any kind of course in journalism that probably shows maybe. I'm probably showing you how the sausages are made. But, um, but yeah, none of us did those. And I think it was more, just us was the practical experience that helped us along the way. Yeah, fair enough. 
we touched on it a moment ago and we didn't quite talk about it, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on what's just happened in South Africa and the abandonment of that ODI tour. Um, from your point of view, do you think it was bad luck, really, from South Africa cricket point of view, or did they mismanage the bubble and all of that? I think it's, I think there are a few strands to this. One of them being that I think if you look back to when England did their bubble and the, you know, the scale of the operation, the also, you know, the fact that you've got two hotels, big hotels on site there as well, what they were able to put together was all the more impressive. It also happened to um, coincide with when cases were pretty low in the UK, um, which, which no doubt helped. And yeah, I, I think with South Africa, with them going through a spike, I don't, I'm not entirely sure. I was, I'm not sure I was so surprised. And it's interesting that, you know, a lot of people mentioning about the ECB setup and the fact that there were no positive cases. Um, I think that might have coloured the minds of a few people involved with the England cricket team in that, you know, it, it was... It was, you know, they were they were perfect, but what they should recognise in being perfect is that, you know, you're not going to get perfect all the time. So, you know, it, it wasn't too much a surprise that there were positive cases. Obviously, the hotel staff was always going to be a bit of an issue. And I think if you look at the thing, in, it was in Old Trafford where they were like, you know, sleeping on the floors and things like that because of various issues with space and when people's shifts were, um, they really went above and beyond. Uh, you know, the hotel staff and everyone behind the scenes who we didn't necessarily see or hear many people talk about. Um, yeah, I, I think it's been, you know, all the chat about like England wanting to play golf in different places, even the South Africa Bry. I think it does seem a bit petty. I think both sides inevitably are kind of coming out of this, trying to ensure that they're as squeaky clean as possible when I think it's... Um, yeah, it's it's a bit unedifying to be honest about how the um how it's the fall, how the fallout's been, and you can kind of understand like, meeting South Africa more than halfway in terms of the information they've been leaking out. Um, you know, they this is the start of their summer, and they want to be in a position to what well, they're going to invite Sri Lanka, Pakistan, and fingers crossed Australia. Um, so they need to. You know they need to put across that it's not an issue that can't be rectified, and that it wasn't just it wasn't through negligence that England didn't play those three ODIs. So, yeah, it's we'll we'll see how it goes. I don't know if you saw Dan Brettig and Crick Info was talking about them potentially moving the series to Perth, Western Australia, yeah, not just for ease and likelihood of it going, you know, going through, but also because the time difference isn't quite so different there. So South Africa wouldn't lose too much in terms of broadcast and advertising from their broadcast for their you know tv so yeah i mean to be honest bubbles were always going to be unsustainable because of the the amount of money that you needed to put into them and it would there was a fear certainly at the end of the summer when you looked at the numbers and looked at how much the ecb how or i suppose how low the ecb reserves got that unless you had that kind of coin you weren't going to be able to put something on and certainly not put anything on with robust safety measures so yeah, again, you know, it's it was never going to be something for the future. And I think the fact that we, the fact that there had been holes in the South Africa bubble is not just telling because it shows how impressive England did or how impressive India did with the IPL or even how impressive the WBBL bubble was in Australia. I think it shows that it's just, long term, it's just not a workable solution to my mind. I think there was something as well about 
how England today announced their tour of India, um, one of the other big three superpowers in world cricket, on the same day as when the ODI part of the South Africa tour would be finishing, but they've already chosen to go. And I think there was something there that felt slightly off, like about these two superpowers agreeing their own series at a time when England's just cancelled on a South Africa series, South Africa you know, international cricket was struggling slightly. I mean, that's also where the, the conflict's coming from a little bit. Well, it, it felt like that to me uh, this particular day. So, Rob, what were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say something completely different about how the Premier League and the Champions League have managed to operate and have teams travelling cross-country, cross-Europe. And apart from the outbreak of the Newcastle um, training ground, there hasn't been... You've had individual players, the Harb, Salah, Mane, whatever, drop off for... A positive test but I was wondering from your, your football work how how they're managing to make that work so well is it because all these footballers live in absolutely f off houses nowhere near anyone else and only go to training and come back or um or what because you think cricket I thought being so hyper cautious rightly so with bubbles and all the rest of it but football seems to just kind of continued but just behind closed doors well you've got to remember footballers generally live quite isolated lives anyway um, especially, well, you know, Premier League footballers, especially. So, um, yeah, I, I suppose it's not been, that's not been too surprising. And also just the, the measures that are in place, especially given how much money is at stake when games are called off and the guarantees they had to get from government and uh, how they had to meet them halfway in terms of all the protocols that they have to have in place. I think that that's not too much of a surprise. And I would say that actually, you know, things like the Newcastle outbreak were, I suppose, more indicative of negligence than, say, what's just happened in South Africa, especially given that beyond all their precautions, they're still supposed to be abiding by the same rules that you and I are abiding by. You kind of wonder how, how an outbreak like that gets to that stage. So, yeah, I mean, I've... I've to be honest, you'd expect, you'd hope the Premier League, with with all their money, with their resources of not just you know, not just financially, but of time and and as you said in your own way of space as well, that they'd be able to kind of cope through this. Um, be interesting to see what Christmas does. To be honest, especially considering you know from a London perspective, we're supposed to. Be, I don't know why I looked out the window as if COVID was there, but you know we're about to be in a situation where we might go into tier three in a couple of weeks. So suddenly all those fans that have been enjoying the games at Spurs, at Stamford Bridge, they're, you know, that's going to be nipped in the bud. I'm going to Tottenham Crystal Palace on Sundays, so there'll be fans there. And then what, in a week's time, there, there won't be? So, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how all, that all develops, yeah. Yeah. But, by the way, about um, that, it's, it, doesn't look, it doesn't look great. I mean, we're both Mark and I are dead concerned about the increasing power, particularly financially, of England, India, Australia. And it's you're seeing increasingly in their dominance in the sport as well, that more and more they are the three best teams or three of the best teams, with New Zealand obviously punched above their weight and occasionally a Pakistan or, or whatever perform well. Do you think that's a concern for you more generally, that the game is starting to be increasingly dominated by those three at the expense of Sri Lanka, Pakistan and, and such? Well, I suppose it's been like that for a while, hasn't it? Like the big three, um, you know, the big three takeover was was as it was. It was a power grab and a, and a land grab as well. But I think it was it was rooted in the fact that those three countries realised that when they play each other the most, they make the most money. And so what you get from that is we're not going to be in a situation where Pakistan are going to get 
five tests in England. We're not going to be in a situation where Pakistan are going to play India in tests or where New Zealand will come over and play three tests. For example, the next summer it's moved that New Zealand are going to play two tests and they're going to be five against India. New Zealand should at least be commanding a three-test series against England, England, given how many times they've turned England over. You know, it's... Yeah. Um, it's absurd, really. And, and, you know, you could argue that the only reason West... I mean, West Indies were always going to get three tests in the summer just gone. But, you know, that that's going to be their lot. They're not going to get a three-test series for a while, even though the World Test Championship dictated as much. So, yeah, it's... I mean, it's always concerning, but you don't... It's quite hard to square it. You want to, You need to incentivize boards to play test cricket, don't you? And to do that, you probably have to de-incentivize T20 cricket, white ball cricket. Um, and how do you do that? I don't really know, to be honest. I, th- I think it's, I wonder if it's more about actually, I mean, you're never going to get this kind of cl- collaboration between um, franchise cricket and international cricket because, you know, they're operating in two completely different worlds there. But until you do, until you get some kind of understanding, and it's probably gonna, it's gonna have to come from, you know, player representation bodies lobbying, you know, lobbying their home boards to do this. But until there's a bit of collaboration there in terms of player availability, we're never gonna see a truly, I don't know, I, I want to say a legitimate Test cricket, are we? No, certainly outside of specific things like an Ashes or, you know, uh, India tour Australia and Kohli's well up for it. You know, that, that those kind of individual tours. But beyond that, they, yeah, they, you're right. There's such, a, there's such a tension there because the in one sense, sport it struggles so much to make money. Some are also a rugby fan and premiership rugby is just has no money. And you look at something like the IPL where they're, I think I read, they're the only like major sporting league where all the sides are profitable, like substantially profitable. They've managed to run an incredible tournament behind closed doors in the, in the Middle East it's cricket making money, being successful, driving on in this increasingly monetized corporate world. It's imperfect and it's kind of this, it's a bit, can be a bit tacky um, and open to corruption and all the rest of it. But it's cricket driving forward in a really good way. So you don't want to lose that, but it, it seems to be increasingly coming at the expense of, I mean, particularly South Africa and West Indian cricket, because all their players, all their best players play in these franchise tournaments year in, year out month in month out in different parts of the world and it, it does feel like it's just going to be a I don't know if it's going to stay like this or whether once whether the franchise stuff is going to end, end up winning out completely that's the worry that we don't want to see but it certainly feels like it's got the upper hand at, at the very least yeah and you know there's I don't necessarily subscribe to this but I, I totally see the the arguments for it but like cricket has had this coming by being such a close shop for so long. It's created this situation itself. So even, you know, when, when you hear people in the UK, you know, people of the ECB, certainly privately, bemoan the strength of the IPL. It's like, well, but like if you, if your lot weren't so hell bent on trying to cordon off your own profit, like a dragon sitting on your riches, then we wouldn't be in a situation where, West Indies would have no power over their own players, where South Africa would be through trying to, well, you know, trying to become equitable would also become a bit of a shambles, where players would see no future in any kind of international alignment. And it's because the game has decided to be so narrow, you know, like what we have 12 test nations, but we don't play against one of them, you know, 
no one wants to play Zimbabwe. No one really wants to go to Bangladesh. You know, oh, some some countries don't play Pakistan. Certainly won't play in Pakistan. So yeah, exactly. Um, so like, you know, that's a, a kind of frustrates me a bit when um we you know and like as members of the press, uh, you know, we, we're definitely guilty of this in terms of because we cover England, we only talk about it when when there's an England slant to it. So for example, Pakistan when they came over here and paying that forward by or you know paying that back by going. And playing in Pakistan, that shouldn't have been dependent on them coming over, to be honest, because the PSL has shown and the England security team were also involved in the PSL, not to mention the countless English players who've gone over there and played in Pakistan. But they know it's it's workable and they know it's fine. They know that Bangladesh is workable and Bangladesh is fine. And you look at the, current, the crop of Bangladeshi fast bowlers now, imagine if they played a test series in England. Imagine how good that would be. Bear in mind that England's the best you know the best conditions for bowling quickly and bowling four specifically which is what you have to do as a subcontinental bowler it's how um Sri Lanka turned over England you know what is it like six years ago now um but just no one's really getting these opportunities and I appreciate now it's more down to you know the future tools program and certainly the World Test Championship as it, as it was before COVID but yeah I mean it's the not the ch- I was going to say chickens are going to come home through. They're you know they're already roosting. They're already running amok. And you know that that's kind of why the ECB came up with the hundred because they created a good thing in T Twenty cricket. They weren't able to do it well, and then they saw that run off into the distance and then affect them at home. And then they've tried to they're trying to replicate that with the hundred, which is why they've um, you know trademarked the actual format and things like that. So yeah, I mean. I always think in these situations, if I'm going to complain about something, I've got to have a solution. And to be honest, I don't really, because it's almost like it's a little bit too far gone. I, I feel the yeah. only saving grace is that um, it's through playing international cricket and doing well in international cricket often that you become a big name. Um, I know that's not exclusively true. And you look at Joffre Archer and how well he did in the franchise tournaments and became well known anyway. But it was when he played for England and did well in the World Cup and then in the Ashes that he became truly global cricket superstar. And so likewise, almost if you're going to be a, someone who ends up going around the world earning millions every time, you, you probably need to have done it in international cricket, at least maybe not in test cricket, but at least at a World T20 or a, a World Cup. And then that's what gives you the, the kudos, the, the name to then basically pack it in at 30 and just go around as a cash cow and clear, clean up all these leagues. And, and I hope that means that good players in their younger years, at least, stick around and play good international cricket because they know that's the the way to getting their name in lights and, and the money that comes afterwards in, in the franchise stuff. That, I mean, that's not a solution, but at least that perhaps doesn't make the problem quite so bad. Yeah, but Rob, you see that you've stumbled across, you know, you've just highlighted the problem there in that, you know, they've got to play international cricket to, um, to become a, a bigger star and therefore get that recognition and that may, might in turn lead to you know, opportunities in franchise tournaments. But that only that only exists in England and Australia. It doesn't exist in India. It's not going to help anyone in Pakistan. It doesn't really exist in the West Indies. It doesn't really exist in... It definitely doesn't exist in Zimbabwe. It definitely doesn't exist in Ireland. Um, what T20 has done is it's made it... made the sport more meritocratic. So you're in a situation now where, actually, when you go to the BPL or to get be a value pick as a injury replacement in the BBL, sorry, uh, in the PSL, you need somebody who can, you need an agent 
and you need someone you need to be someone who is going to be cheap enough so that you can get your first few gigs it's almost like it's basically freelancing as a journalist you start you try to impress the right people and then from then you can you know build your brand i suppose and you know like that's with all due respect like paul sterling isn't renowned as a pick for franchise tournaments because he played for middlesex or because he I mean, it's because he's good at T20 cricket and he's shown that by kind of your point about playing for Ireland, but also just being valuable and being someone of worth. Um, Rashid Khan is another example of a player who didn't necessarily need test cricket, but is a superstar because of T20 cricket. Um, Sandeep Levishani as well is um, somewhat, is you know another example. I think we, obviously there are countless other uh, Caribbean players as well, but that that's kind of where the where the game is skewed somewhat. I think you know the it's not well. I suppose the economics is skewed that way as well. But I think if 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 you've got if you're not an English kid or an Australian kid or even a if you're not a Caribbean kid with a British passport, I think you, there's no reason why you've got there's no reason why you have to think that the red ball holds like any real value for you. Because if you want to make the most out of your career, you probably have to certainly be accomplished at white ball cricket. Do you think the hundred could be that solution here? Or <laughs> no, my, no. My, my worry, my worry about the hundred is it's so like corporate and managed down to like the minute level. It's not really an opportunity for people to break out in the same way that maybe other franchise tournaments are. I don't think the hundred is going to be particularly great for player development, but I do think it'll be good to watch. And I do think it'll be good for, you know, through through being or having access on free to air TV and generally being like will, you know, it's just going to be T20, isn't it? So it'll be entertaining, um, in the way that T20 is. And so, through that, I think it's going to pull in new people. I think what also happens is that because it starts from scratch, you won't necessarily have that same kind of snobbery that's attached to, I suppose, other cricket in England. Um, like as, as an example, I, I went to a T20 game at the Oval. And I, like I, I took my partner with me, and we sat down. And she went to go. She stood up to go to the bathroom, but um, you know, three three balls into an over. And my reaction was to stop her from going to the bathroom, to be like, "Oh no, no, go at the end of the over." And she was like, "Oh shit, okay." And a steward saw me, and like you know, he was just a few feet away from me, and he was like, "Oh no, no, it's a T twenty, you can go." So she went to the bathroom got us a couple of drinks, came and sat down. The atmosphere was more, she found the atmosphere more welcoming, having been to a couple of championship games with me. And yeah, like it, it, it's just a little, little thing. It wasn't pronounced. She didn't feel unwelcome at the championship game. She just felt there was more for her. You know, she, she's a sports fan. She played semi-professional football. Um, so she, she gets the rhythms of sport to agree, even a sport as obscure as cricket. And it wasn't, yeah, as I said, it wasn't even that she felt intimidated by the atmosphere. She just felt there was more for her as a casual slash non-fan of the game. And I think that's where the hundreds pool is going to be. It's going to kind of dip into that T20 mm. market while also, you know, skimming off the top of like the free-to-air stuff. Um, so I don't necessarily think it's going to do particularly great things for players because if you, if you even if you look at the players who've been picked up in the auction, they do pretty well around the world as well, whether that's for, you know, in lower tier T20 competitions or just generally being like, you know, on, on a decent amount of white ball money at their respective counties. So it's not going to, we're not going to have 
any rags to riches stories here and and you know no no one else plays a 100 ball format so it's not going to help us in any major tournament that's interesting that you say that about um sorry because i went to quite a few middlesex t20s the year before last obviously pre-covid and they are still militant about the overall you know you still can't go in yeah, and sit yeah. down even mid over and i think that's just because it's at lords and lords has all of the pomposity and you know grandiose grandiosity about it and it still sticks to the rules and it's probably it and t20 cricket are probably like uneasy bedfellows um i do one thing that occurred to me as he spoke is that the rise of franchise cricket and the way it is more meritocratic like you said and it can fund players in ways they wouldn't have been funded before that could actually go well hand in hand with nations who are, who are struggling more than England, India, Australia financially, because if they can make their schedules fit around franchise cricket, then their players are getting paid by their franchises or maybe getting paid better by their franchises, but it's less pressure on them to get paid as well as they should be by their countries. Um, and so I don't know that, that to me feels like a way in which you could see the positive side of it for international cricket, but it needs that collaboration. It needs flexibility which i guess is always the issue with cricket yeah definitely i suppose you can you know it's helping it's helped english players as well franchise cricket like timar mills would have had to retire wouldn't he yeah if, if that, that avenue wasn't open to him um so yeah it's uh yeah i mean i i totally agree and then at the same time i'm a little bit like well i don't want you know i don't want the thing i love to be affected by something I also like, but like a little bit less. So, yeah. I, sorry, I, I realise I'm, I'm just, I'm just like ranting here, but um, no, it's really ranting, <laughs> ranting about nothing in particular as well. I'm just going around in circles. But yeah, you know, um, Tim Wigmore is someone who writes a lot about this kind of stuff and has a lot of great ideas. And I, he wrote something about how. If you're going to forget the World, World Test Championship, here are some solutions. And one of his was like a you know a World Cup idea, and it's a really good idea, I thought. But it's just it relies on so many different people with so many different short-term interests to accept it for the long-term good. And you know, Michael, you were saying you work in local government, you would understand how difficult that is. <laughs> yeah, bureaucracy is a barrier, um, and yeah, different interests clashing. I tell you what, let's take you away from this. Quest, the existential crisis of cricket <laughs> and take you to an existential crisis of journalism a little bit um so you write for the independent which is you know a publication that's moved online and we've seen the rise of things like the athletic you know premium sports content all online subscription and you're seeing broadsheet sales numbers go down do you think that's the way journalism's going do you think that is increasingly likely to be happening you know for, for other publications as well what are your thoughts on it yeah, definitely. I mean, that's. <laughs> if I didn't say yes in 2020, then I'd be, I suppose I'd be a bit of an idiot, wouldn't I? Um, the thing about the independence move, which obviously happened long before I joined them, was. And, and it's, it's kind of borne out, actually, given like how well they've done during the pan pandemic compared to um, their more traditional rivals, is that they kind of saw the lay of the land and. and figured out right why don't we just try and why don't we why don't we try and preempt this why don't we let's not try stop well let's stop trying to swim against the tide and let's try and do things a bit differently um because i don't think we lose any of the journalism i don't think it necessarily the journalism changes it's just the medium really doesn't it so you know the the athletic uh, 
it's incredible you know i, I was a I, I signed up more or less when they launched so i'm a little bit annoyed at all these one pound a month deals but <laughs> i'm not really but i'm on a one pound a month deal. It's pretty sweet are you really so, yeah oh, i've got it for another three months and i've got the reminder in my calendar you know <laughs> athletic subscription deal ends just because i've been stung before many times yeah, what yeah. You do, you yep. cancel and sign up with a different email um and do it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's how that's basically how I have Amazon Prime now. I just didn't stop it. So, but yeah, the um, so yeah, and if you look at like other places like the Times, they've kind of done it in their own way where they have like different editions throughout the day. Telegraph, the Standard Journalism, there particularly. I think I'm talking only about sport, but the Standard Sports Journalism is there. In there is is brilliant as well. Just the the number of writers they have and the number of stories they get. I mean, interesting on Telegraph. So that I. I pay, that's what I pay for. I pay for Telegraph only for sport, really. I mean, some of the opinion pieces about politics can, can have a day off, but the um, the rugby writing is particularly really, really good. Cricket writing is great. A lot of the football writing is good. Which shows that even myself, stingy as I am, I'm willing to pay for, for decent sports journalism. That's the thing. And I think you've... It's not calling people's bluff because I know, you know, not everyone who comments on an article will be like, oh, it's a, you know, it's a paywall, what am I going to do? Not everyone that isn't representative of, of the wider public otherwise people would stop doing that if it wasn't popular but i think more and more people realize that you have to pay for it and now it's about us on our side showing people that it's worth paying for um which is what the athletic has done well it's what the telegraph have done well so yeah like I, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing beyond maybe the people well beyond obviously the people who'd be out of work for this shift i think long term it's going to be better what it is better for the industry um, and that there will be kind of short-term teething problems. But I think generally more and more people need to need to get online. Again, that's weird saying that in 2020, but that you feel like, you know, some people are still kind of holding on to some of those old world values. Well, linked to this, I mean, part of the reason, you know, I was, I was aware of you and I wanted you to come on the podcast. I follow you on Twitter. I really enjoy your content particularly the memes about Royston Chase and his <laughs> his grip on the England batting order with his, you know, with his deliveries that don't turn. Um, but yeah, how important how important do you think social media is to the modern journalist as well? Because I know you use it well, but and so do others. Um, yeah, I suppose it's really important. It was really important for me as a freelancer, just getting your work out there. Um, obviously, you'll find that with the podcast, don't you? That, you know, getting traction and talking about relevant things and jumping on different conversations and starting different conversations is quite an important way to go about it um but yeah obviously it's vitally important you see how much you know how much news breaks over twitter for a start and and therefore like when, when you're in the industry it's like learning how to i suppose how to do that really um while also i mean <laughs> very kind of you to mention my quote-unquote content but it is largely nonsense and i think that's why you know i've got as many followers as i do because it was always it's always been a personal account because i've been freelance for so long and i've never been bound by any regulations like you know i don't say anything outlandish i'm not kind of you know saying things to get a rise out of people but i think yeah like you know i've probably swear a little less now Definitely haven't used the C word in a while. That's been a conscious choice and quite a struggle at times. Probably wise. <laughs> yeah. But the, um, 
yeah but but generally i think it's um yeah it's just a good way of putting yourself across um and on a in a professional sense twitter is is very good for gay i suppose gauging reaction to things um not just you know things that are happening at say matches you're at like for example you know I, sometimes you'd be at a match and you would be on the crowd's reaction you wouldn't necessarily get any you, you don't get any kind of opinion from that you say you know okay they enjoyed this they didn't like that but what are the other things in there that we, we aren't we are noticing and someone might say like oh you know why is a lot of times people who comment on on cricket you know do really know their stuff so they might say something you think oh god i hadn't thought of that actually and steal it and write it in your article as i have done a few times but <laughs> Do you know what I mean? There's a bit more back and forth, isn't there, with, yeah. with Twitter? What, what do you think about the like the nastiest side of Twitter? So I, I got rid of my personal account because it was locked down and it was lockdown time, really. And it just got, um, and it was at the time, something we'll come on to in a bit with a Black Lives Matter as well, which I may noticed you've been vocal on. Um, it all just started to get horrible, uh, you know, on for people on different sides with different opinions, but just being really nasty. And I, and I decided it's a bit of, you know, COVID clean living, go for walks in the park and, and feel very, that I thought, you know, what, I can, I can do without this. I think it's just so toxic. Do you, yeah. do you wrestle with that yourself, even though of course you're not going to go off it because it's so important to your work? Yeah, I do actually. I, I, so I've deleted Twitter from my phone, um, which I can't find, but um, <laughs> I've deleted Twitter from my phone. That's quite a big thing. My partner hates it because she's like, you, you know, you're always on it. And it kind of, you know, very similar to you, like it, it, it like spoils evenings, doesn't it? If you're, you know, when you're reading some of the stuff that we have been reading this year. Um, but yeah, I, I think I'm trying to, I try and take breaks from it. Um, like if I go on holiday, I'll just bin it. And for that holidays, good Instagram fodder, not good Twitter fodder. <laughs> but um, yeah, so it's, it's not something I wrestle with. I think it's something that I'm aware of because I think you can get, certainly I, I can get really sucked into my phone. And, you know, Twitter's the biggest thing that sucks me in. So I think being a lot, I suppose a lot of 2020 has been being trying to be more productive with your time um, and and trying to maintain, a, I suppose, a more stable mental health. So like kind of for the same reasons that you outlined, actually, I've been conscious of not being on it as much, yeah, even though I'm probably still on it quite a bit. Just um, following on from that, Rob mentioning BLM, I, I read your article you, you wrote in September about how there's been some progress, you know, particularly with the ECB, a bit of progress this summer and with BLM and how it can't be allowed to go cold. And we're seeing stuff like with the Azima Fique things in Yorkshire and the investigation. And we see, you know, footballers, cricketers taking a knee. But then you also see stuff like at the, like the Moon match recently and the South Africa team voting not to take a knee. I don't know, I just want to get your thoughts on this and how, how far there is to go in eradicating or you know eradicating racism from the game that we love cricket um i, th- I think the the south for example is a good one because I, th- I think what we're what we saw there was a country who weirdly are a, la- are a lot further along in the conversations they're having than we are in the uk um so i i wrote it so i was in the, i was in south Africa at the start of the year and i wrote this piece about just my observations of, of how they've been been doing really and it's interesting because they have you know there's still a lot of well there are a lot a lot of issues in South Africa but you know with things with the quota system which 
you know, is an imperfect system, but also in the way that they're trying to, how, how they try to change certain areas, such as, you know, just outside of Port Elizabeth, um, mm-hmm. the issues they've had there in certain areas and the way that they've had to reallocate funding into certain different schemes. There's still a lot of tension there, but they are actually talking about it. They are actually looking to address it. So for the BLM stuff, I think on their point of view, like I was a little bit disappointed because I didn't think any of the arguments held water. But you got to remember they're in a they're in a completely different space. They're in a completely different world. They're not contending with the same issues that we're dealing with. A lot of the messaging is the same, but a lot of the issues are completely different. Which is why I was quite heartened by the way Australia at least tried to make it more applicable to them, and particularly how they've. You know how they've treated their indigenous population over the years and not just historically but recently as well so that in itself felt like they were trying to do something in their own way um in in terms of in terms of the issues of cricket over here you'll get you'll always get this argument with cricket and i think it's a little bit of a bit of people covering them for themselves because people say that oh you know in cricket specifically, it's more of a class issue than a race issue. And it is true, there is a class issue, but there is also a race issue. And I think you only need to listen to the words of Ebony Raven Brent, Michael Carberry, Azim Rafiq to, to know that's true. And if you choose not to believe them, then that's I'm, 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 you're not going to be changed and you might as well kind of move out of the way for the time being. In terms of eradication, I think what needs to happen, I'm, like, I'm as much a fan of education as I am of ramifications in some regard so i don't necessarily think yorkshire for example should have anything put upon them or any kind of you know any kind of punishment because of what happened to azim rafiq but i think you know certainly the people involved who still aren't accepting their fault in it or accepting any blame even though they've a few of them have apologized to him publicly sorry privately um it's not to say that you should make an example out of people, but I think you should show people that it's certain things aren't allowed to stand. And I think with that kind of punishment would in itself be any kind of punishment would itself come with that kind of education, uh, not just for them, for everyone else as well. And I think even little things like educating people about the Rooney rule and also the idea that when you're trying to improve representation on boards, you're not just kind of, walking into a room now and pointing at all the different ethnicities and you know different sexualities and different sexual orientations being like right you guys come sit in here and let's start a new board you're basically creating systems that then allow those people to have the same opportunities basically get, get the same opportunities to be rejected as, as anyone else really that's what you're also getting there you're not just get, handing people jobs and i think sometimes when we talk about increased representation and we talk about wanting to have or more British Asian coaches, for example, in county cricket. We're not saying that so that we can... So Vic Ramsalanki is going to be the new England coach or, you know, Cabrera-Rally is going to be the new bowling coach. It's more putting in a system that they feel welcome, that they feel able to come into this world. And, you know, just in the same way that, like, you might have been heartened by the fact that I said that none of us have journalism degrees. Not a lot of people know that, and maybe that cuts a lot of people off. But when people do have that information, when they do know it's an accessible area to them, they might think, well, actually, shit, why don't I just give it a go? Uh, and that's basically what you want, isn't it? Yeah. Are you, um, given the examples you gave, the Rooney rule versus the, the quota system in South Africa, you definitely found that 
giving people the opportunity to get their foot in the door, not necessarily having hard and fast quotas, because there is that. I mean, I'm part of a, a group chat mates from from home cr- cricket related one, and there were you know, instantly comments about some of the guys in the top order of South Africa in the 2020 series who didn't perform, and then in come five and six who did, and that just that feeling of you know, was Hendricks like was he a quota pick? Is that why he's there? Which I think causes almost more problems because it just puts a shadow over their achievements if they are given a second chance. Well, is this the reason why they're being given a second chance? That's always my hesitation with something that's as like a quota system compared to Rooney rule, which is just saying you've got to interview someone at least. You've got to give someone the chance to, and then if they're good enough on a meritocratic basis, then they, they get the gig. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm inclined to agree, especially when you get into a situation that South Africa are in where they get judged on their percentage over a season so therefore they f- they load they can sometimes load their the least important of their series to it sounds horrible to say but it's like essentially to top themselves up by the time they get to the judgment time um and so like yeah that's something i wrestle with as well but like man their history their recent history is dark really dark so i mean it's not an ideal solution but it comes from a place where you know, there was some, it was a pretty horrendous, South Africa was a pretty horrendous place. And that's why the, what they're going through now is so, even the correction itself is so awkward. So, you know, Fido's Munda Quick Info has written a lot about this and, and she's she's very passionate about it. And, you know, I've had, I've had chats with her over a drink where I'm a bit like, you know, it's not perfect. She's like, no, it's not. But like, it got it, it was so bad that what do you do like how do you show these people that they are they are welcome because it's not like that's the funny thing it's not actually about the people who are picked it's about literally everyone else when i was when we were in south africa and faf Duplessis was going through a rough time honestly some of the you know some of the black south african radio stations were gunning for him were like this this guy has to go this guy has to go because they need the they can't because the way they saw it was it wasn't that someone someone of, of a different background was going to take his place it was that everyone needs to be judged really harshly now because if we're going to have pelters thrown up against you know Temba Bavuma who you know has a pretty um pretty average you know test record then where's this guy who's only been averaging you know he's barely averaging double figures for the last year you know where's you know, where are the people coming for him? So it does, yeah, it does create situations that are very, very tense, even in, you know, sporting discourse. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's not perfect, but then I, I couldn't give you a, you know, I, I couldn't give you a remedy to that, to be honest. And like, so I was talking to, sorry, I, I, I did a T20 preview piece and I was talking to Ben Jones from Crickviz and we came up with a South African team and it was brilliant. Like a genuinely world-class team that could easily given the experience of those players in India could easily walk the world T20 next year. And we picked him. We're like, Oh shit, that's not going to work. Is it? They probably know that that's a side that they could pick. They just know they can't pick it. Which is hard. I I was reading an interesting thing about particularly batsmen and how most people who make it to the top in cricket in South Africa, when cricket generally, you need to have had good coaching, really good coaching to be particularly batsmen technically good. And so unless you've, through that elite private school system, even in this country, but let alone in South Africa, you get very, very few township kids who basically have the opportunity to bat on good wickets and nets and good facilities. And so you might get a few more bowlers, but it's actually at that very, very early, early age that are oh, you 11 years old? It's 
you know, are you gonna, you're not playing hockey and, and cricket on good wickets. Well, your hand is going to be five, six years behind an A.B. de Villiers or, or whoever. And, and it's almost too late. And you can get those few guys who have had those opportunities and try and get them playing first-class cricket or international cricket. But when the problems are so much earlier and more structural, it, it feels sometimes like window dressing. Yeah, I think Michael Atherton wrote something like about that during the Southwest series at the start of the year, didn't he? Um, about why, you know, I suppose about that split. Um, but, it, it, you know, it happens in Sri Lanka as well. Like all Sri Lanka's greatest batsmen have been private school boys because for the reasons you, you say, because they can, they, they're going to get the facilities to train. You need nets, you need equipment. More often than not, you need a personal coach as well. You've got to be able to afford all those things. And you look at all the bowlers and all the background of the bowlers. Um, obviously, Lestith Malinga, story of him, you know, playing on a beach. You got Nuan Pradeep, who kind of came from nowhere, could can only bowl. So yeah, you it's it's kind of the same everywhere. And you know, I suppose it's it's not too different here in terms of like where we get our cricketers from and where the majority come from. Yeah, that's true. And just thinking about South Africa's recent history, I think it got really exposed how difficult that balance is because I think it was Ngidi said, you know, um, before the T20 series, we're going to be doing something about BLM. It's something we'll be addressing as a team. If we're not, it's something I'm going to bring up. And then there were loads of pretty bad comments from former South Africa players, all white, saying, you know, I think Pat Simcox, what nonsense is this? Stop trying to get the protests involved in his belief and a couple of other bad comments. And that's just from recent players, so, so recent. And, yeah, it's incredibly difficult. It's, it's hard with the wider context because their sports minister um, was really, really went after a lot of the rugby players when that resumed. And there's a, there's a real live political tension to it in a way that, as you said, this is probably because they're further along in the conversation in many ways. Um, to hear it's, I mean, apart from a few things with last night, the proms and stuff, our politicians <laughs> haven't quite got involved in the same way. And so there isn't the political heat perhaps that there is in South Africa which I, which I think just meddles it all and makes it more complex more messy and I, I, I understand why a player wouldn't want to put their head above the parapet yeah yeah that is um, that is a big problem and I think you know I, I do wonder how the how the summer would have been different from an England perspective in terms of what they did had it not been the West Indies touring you know um, because obviously they didn't do it against Pakistan which stuck in the crew a bit given that they did it the island ODI the day before the start of the Pakistan test series so you know there were various problems there and obviously the England women did it but again because the West Indies were there would that have been any different if that was any different opposition so I suppose it's now a moot point really and you just got to go with um, now that we have that we are having the conversations and now that we're you know the ECB are putting you know doing exactly as they say they would you know starting all these directives and, and really being quite involved you know tom ecb chief exec tom harrison i know because of the hundred he doesn't have many fans among county cricket but you know he, he's been very impressive I, i'm not someone who's usually impressed by administrators per se but he's um he's been very impressive on this in particular yeah and it's probably a good note to end on because my, my delivery is going to arrive in about two minutes <laughs> uh, what did you get um, I, I think we've gone for Leon because it, it's actually Uber Eats. I tell a lie because Uber Eats doing free delivery for over fifteen pounds. So um, Leon Uber Eats for, for tonight, I think. Um, nice but, but going back to the ECB, they had a pretty good twenty twenty, really, in, in many ways, in terms of how they managed to 
big, bold, but well, brave, but correct decision to put the hundred to one side and then put these tours on when there wasn't a huge amount of sport going on. We had good cricket throughout the summer. It felt like there's been a lot of hate for the ECB and we've, Michael and I have spoken about this a bit, but they got it, they got it right this time around. And you can probably add the whole BLM zeitgeist to, to that as well. Yeah, definitely, definitely. The um, it does make you wonder how twenty twenty one is going to go because they've got so much to pack in. But no, they yeah they they did really well. I think you know credit should also go to the counties as well for what they were able to produce because I, I was a little bit wary of that because the players would have so little practice essentially leading into a season, and you wondered obviously with the getting the Bob Willis Trophy, you wondered kind of how that would pan out and whether. It would, the cricket or how the cricket would suffer really not whether it would suffer um but yeah you know the t20 blast and the and the four-day stuff was was great to watch really and it was you know it kind of ended a bit of a damp squibber lords but you know we we still got some pretty good stories out of it you know um i saw alice score 100 at lords which is pretty incredible um i thought i was done with that but um but yeah, you, you know, Tom Lamanby as well for Somerset. He looks an exciting player. He's kind of come out of nowhere. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, credit to them. And uh, just credit to English cricket in general, I think, for, for what, you know, there are going to be tough times ahead, but what they're able to put, to get, put together in that 2020 summer has been, um, yeah, was more than worthwhile. It feels like we've stumbled across a format that could actually really work for county championship cricket here. And it's been fought and it was forced as a result of the crazy events of 2020. But, I mean, county cricket needs a shot in the arm anyway. So it's actually, I feel like, come along a good time. It's actually a compelling thing to watch. Yeah, but then, like, even in 2021, where they've got, like, they're going to do it the normal championship way. Is that right? And then have a, a league table where you are the county champions, but then you play the final. They've slightly managed to ruin that as well, but... It's well, like it's, you, you, win, you get the league champions, you, you won the league because you're top of the league, but we're still going to do a playoff thing anyway. They used so to the yeah, Premiership it's rugby, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, Premiership rugby used to do that. They kind of now it's like I don't care if you finish first or fourth, you're all in. But there was a yeah. time where there's one year where you literally there's a quiz site, Sporkle, where you do like you know sports trivia quizzes and stuff. And depending on what quiz you pick, Gloucester won the league or Wasps won the league because Gloucester finished top, but Wasps won the playoffs. And it's just that's so stupid. You have one winner, you have a competition with clear rules. That's how you win it. And yeah, I'll leave it at that. Well, it wouldn't be the ECB if it wasn't, you know, one step forward, two steps back. So tinkering with something in just the wrong way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot for coming on tonight. It's been uh, it's been really good fun, really good, really good chatting to you. No, cheers. Thanks for having me, guys. Cheers. Yeah, have a all the best and best of luck with the bathroom tomorrow. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, enjoy the different room. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I thought that was really interesting and potentially the most intellectually challenging hit for six episode we've done in quite a long time. And I really appreciate that, actually. It's nice to be stretched, nice to be pushed a bit on areas that you don't know as much about. Um, and it was really great listening to Vicky Shan. So, well, Michael, speak for yourself. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a thriving intellectual in the game of cricket. And so now I, I felt very much on terra firma. But no, I mean, check aside, it was, it was really good. It slightly caught me on the hop. I had a very busy day at work. Um, he'd, he'd pushed us back because he was having his bathroom done as I brought up about three times during the uh, recording. Although it has to be said that did work very well for us because both of us were dreading trying to fit in the 2pm. Yeah, um, we, we were. Our day. Yeah, I'd had a very, very hectic day. 
Um, and so it was kind of, I was hoping to have a bit of a, a wind down, keep it short, a little chat to him about whatever, and then I could have my delivery and put my feet up. Um, but it, it ran on and on uh, and got into territories that I, I kind of hoped we would talk to him about, but I didn't know if we would, um, particularly around. I just think it's such an interesting tension at the heart of the game at the moment with the franchise stuff and the money it makes and the meritocratic nature and the opportunities it provides for players from countries like Afghanistan and, and others, while at the same time keeping cricket for all its best qualities, test cricket, the best form of the game, um, the hardest form of the game, but not the most lucrative financially, and just where that tension sits and how it will ever be resolved. It's so interesting. It's, it is going to be the, the theme of the 2020s, and I think by the end of the decade, we'll have a clearer idea of where cricket's going to going to go into the next 50 years. All Test cricket gone, except for the Ashes. The Ashes remains. And they practice for the Ashes by playing warm-up games against each other. I mean, ho- I mean, hopefully not, but be a bit tongue-in-cheek. No. They well, practice for the Ashes by playing India. Yeah, I mean, I think, basically, Test cricket is still such a financially strong vehicle in England and Australia, two of the three, that, that it's not going to completely go. Um, and India. Yeah, but basically anything India does makes money because the market is so big. Um, but no, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, Michael, I hope, I hope your tooth gets better. And yeah, have, a, have a lovely weekend. Cheers, mate. You too.